Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. So how do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month, they deliver them to your doorstep. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of a death. Oh. (laughs) A happy death? No, a very sad death. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Most people will never have heard of this person we're talking about today. The few who have heard of her, this is the only story that they know. A woman died in Venice. How romantic, right? Right. But it wasn't. She fell or threw herself from the window of her apartment on the Grand Canal. But the street side of the Grand Canal. (laughs) Yeah. I was imagining romantically splashing into the water. She fell or jumped into the road in the middle of the night and died. Now, this woman was very close friends with Henry James, who many may have heard of, the famous writer, author of Portrait of a Lady, Turn of the Screw. Mm -hmm. And after she died, her family notified him of her death and invited him to come and help go through her things, which shows how close their friendship was. And he was so grief-stricken that they asked him to do something with her dresses, which would usually mean give them to the poor. Right, yeah. He took a boat out into the lake with her dresses and tried to drown them. He threw them into the water and kept trying to push them down, you know, to make them sink. But because this is the 19th century and dresses are very large and very full of air, they wouldn't sink. And they just kept rising back up to the top. So we have this image of, if people know, the very melancholic Henry James struggling to drown these dresses of this dear friend of his out on the lake. Oh, A hugely evocative image. Of course, we can see why this is a story that sticks around. The problem is, it's probably not even true. No. Um, We have one source for it that is pretty sketchy. But because this is such an evocative image, it is the story that remains about the woman we're talking about today, whose name was Constance Fenimore Wilson. Now... Aside from not being true, the other problem with this story is, of course, that this means that the only story we have of Constance Fenimore Wilson is a story about Henry James. Is a story about (laughs) Henry James. She's not even alive for the story. (laughs) The story about her life is she's dead. Ah. Constance Fenimore Wilson absolutely deserves to be known for more than being dead. (laughs) And so we are going to try to make that happen today. 
wait, when you were saying a close woman friend of Henry James, I was thinking Edith Wharton, the nerdier of our readers may be thinking. (laughs) And of course, his very close friendship with Edith Wharton is, it's been written about to a huge, huge degree. And that's why I find this so interesting because he had what seems to be that close of a relationship with her before he ever met Edith Wharton. And so why is one of these relationships turned into something really important and the other one dismissed? Hmm. Well, because Edith Wharton is a brilliant writer, we say. So was Constance Fenimore Wilson, I say. Mm. I've never heard of her. I had never heard of her. And this exact period of American literature was my field in Mm. undergrad. And I've never heard of this woman. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. So we have this one story about the death of her clothing. <laughs> I mean, it's such a great image. It, it keeps really playing is. through my head, and it's amazing. Those clear waters of Venice out there desperately. I imagine he's weeping and he's shoving these dresses under the water and they keep coming up. It's just awesome. Yeah, I, I really want it to be true. So to learn more about Constance Fenimore Wilson, I talked to Anne Boyd Rue. I'm Anne Boyd Rue, and I'm a professor at the University of New Orleans and the author of a biography of Constance Fenimore Wilson. The only biography of Constance Fenimore Wilson and the editor of a book of Constance Fenimore Wilson's fiction, which I highly, highly recommend. This is some of the best stuff that I have never read. Cool. So my desire in writing this biography of her was bring her to life as a full human being and show us who she was because she lived a fascinating life. And she was an incredible writer. I mean, I think it's really important that we realize that her first novel, Anne, which was published at almost exact same time as Henry James's masterpiece, The Portrait of a Lady, outsold his book 10 times. So we have this one story. Unfortunately, the earlier parts of her life are not as well documented. She was born in New Hampshire to a fairly well-off family. Her mother was the niece of James Fenimore Cooper, thus the middle name, the author of Last of the Mohicans. He was the novelist at that point. He was still the most famous writer in America. Mm. She grew up, um, I would say, fairly genteel family, not particularly well-off. They had some serious setbacks along the way, but her father was a Early on was a journalist and then became a stove manufacturer. So she grew up in a fairly traditional family, but unfortunately, the family was just dogged by tragedy. Within a few weeks of Constance's birth, three of her sisters died of scarlet fever. Ooh. Shortly afterwards, two more sisters die. This really, really affects her family's mental health, obviously. Her mother never really recovers from this loss of all of these children. Eventually, they would have three more children, and two of them would die. In the end, they ended up burying six of their nine children. Jeez. After they lose several of these children, they move first to New York, and then to Cleveland, and it seems to be the family's solution to tragedy is to move. Anytime a major tragedy happens, they pick up and find a new place, which I can completely identify with. You need a new start. You need a new place that isn't haunted by those people. Right. It's a family that that values education. Her father is described as bookish, but it's also a very conservative family. She had really grown up to think of herself as a daughter 
first and foremost, and potentially as a wife. She wanted to get married. She wanted to live a conventional woman's life. That was what she was raised for. Her literary talents appear to have been quite visible early on. She was a natural writer. I think she was writing a lot when she was young. None of that writing survives, and none of it was. And we don't know if it was not if it was published or not because um, after he died, that's when she started publishing because they needed the money. She was, you know, she was alone with her mom. Shortly thereafter, her sister's husband died, and she had a small child. So suddenly, she had these people that she needed to care for and provide for. And her mother was fairly sickly, and so she、um, realized that her writing could become marketable. So she starts publishing, and I say publishing, not writing, because with the speed that she is putting out these stories, it's clear that she has been writing for a very long time,、ah. and they have just been stockpiling. This was a huge step for her to make because she hadn't grown up to think of herself that way. We don't really have many records about her childhood or about her early life, for some reasons that we'll talk about a bit later. So there is some detective work that has to be done, and one of the most interesting links that Anne Boydrew brought up for me is this one because it has a very interesting link to our previous episode on the Porter sisters. One thing that did remain was this volume of Harper's Magazine. So it was from 1850. Um, when she was quite young, so she's born in 1840, the very first volume of Harper's. And what they did at the time was, after the year was over, could have all of your issues bound together in a book. And this volume remained over the years, I think, because Wilson herself became one of Harper's most prominent authors. So the family held on to this first volume of Harper's Magazine. You look through it, and you can see where the kids have signed their names over the years. And it was, you know, very tempting to think of Wilson as signing her name in there, as if she hoped that one day it might appear there in print. But one of the most telling bits of evidence I found of her family's attitude towards women writers was there was an essay about the novelist Jane Porter. I know that you had, yeah, had her on a previous podcast, which I was very interested about because I didn't know about Jane Porter, except for from this article in Harper's Magazine, 1850, which I guess is the year that she died. And there was a picture of Jane Porter on the first page, and one of the members of the family had doodled over it, and they had drawn a top hat on her, they gave her a goatee and a mustache. This is a clear sign, I think, of how the family felt about a woman becoming a prolific published author. Right? She wasn't a woman anymore. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Very much masculinized her. Looking down on her, this woman writer is a man. She's mannished herself, <laughs> and it's. Very obviously, an extremely negative view of Jane Porter, which is wild, right? Because you're sitting here reading the magazine and keeping it and appreciating all of these women writers, right? But also very much looking down on them, especially that Jane Porter was also the, in later life, itinerant writer, just traveling from place to place. Yes, exactly. Wow. And there's quite a few parallels here. Jane Porter, as, I, as I've learned from listening to your broadcast, was a single woman throughout her life. Was not entirely happy about it. 
The same could be said about Wilson. She didn't want to be considered a mannish woman writer. And frankly, that's how all women writers were viewed. She knew that very well. It's clear from her letters that she didn't like the way people looked at women writers. And she still wanted to be respected as a woman. She was not a typical woman, though. She never was. Her mother and her sisters, they were traveling around the South. And then later when she went to Europe, they were always dressed very fashionably, very femininely. Wilson, on the other hand, wore pretty plain clothes. I think she styled her hair very plainly. And her sister and her mother, frankly, were quite horrified at how she appeared. They didn't want her to wear her glasses in public, for instance. So Wilson was always struggling with this need to be respected as a woman and her very fierce desire to be respected as a writer. To be respected as a woman meant to basically to not be taken as a writer, to be viewed as a woman first, right? But to be respected as a writer meant to have your gender be second. So if she was going to be respected as a writer, she had to compete with men. She had to gain their respect and their attention because they were the ones who were bestowing literary value, cachet on writers, frankly, because women writers were still viewed in the late 19th century as marginal figures. They were very, very popular, right? But that, of course, didn't make people take them seriously. She wanted to be taken seriously. As much as she needed to earn money from her writing, she wanted people to respect her And she wanted the most important male critics and writers, such as Henry James, to take her seriously as a writer. She was the only one who received that middle name of Fenimore, and that middle name helped her gain Mm. entrance to the most prestigious magazines at the time right off the bat. You know, that got her in the door, but as soon as they saw her writing, they thought, oh, she can really write, too. So she submits a few things to a few magazines, her name grabs people's attention, and then the editors go, whoa, this is brilliant stuff. (laughs) She is offered, almost right out of the gate, an exclusive contract with Harper's Magazine. Wow, that's a big deal. It was the literary magazine. Nobody gets offered an exclusive contract with Harper's. And she says no, because she knows she has so much stuff that they won't possibly be able to publish it. In the first few years, she is sometimes publishing like two stories a month in other really important big magazines. You know, now, oh, you have a story in a magazine, so what? But this was the way that literature was happening. Getting in these magazines was, it's landing a TV show, right? These serialized magazines were the most important entertainment happening. After her father dies, her mom is really sickly. And of course, when you are sickly in the 19th century, you go south. So they moved to Florida for a while, which it's sort of becoming the new invalid center. So she moves to Florida for a while. And while they're there, she and her mother and her sister are traveling all over the South. She's sort of making the grand historical tour of the Civil War just a few years after the war is over. So she's visiting all the battlefields. She's visiting all the graveyards. She's She really is consumed with how the nation is putting itself back together. Mm. She's really interested in sort of the social contracts that have to happen for the nation to decide it's one country again, which, of course, even now is still not really, (laughs) it's still not a completed task. Interestingly, so she's known as this writer of 
Great Lakes fiction and Northeastern fiction, but she also becomes really well known as one of the best writers addressing the post-Civil War South. The war was a very big deal to her. She, you know, living in Cleveland was never close to the battlefronts, but she held it so closely. I mean, the war, she later said, was the heart and soul of her life. It really had a major impact on her because she was in her early 20s, and those were the formative years of her life. Many of her writings deal with the Civil War, the aftermath of the war. She has a whole collection of stories called Rodman the Keeper that are all set in the South after the Civil War. And her most famous story to come out of that period is actually about the keeper of a northern cemetery in the South. And it's a, such a powerful story because the keeper of the cemetery is from the North. He's a former soldier. And over the course of the story, this sort of detente develops between him and the people in the community. So at this point, there's a lot of people writing reunion romances where the Northern man marries the Southern woman and everything works out through love. And it was a really popular trope at this point that sort of masked a lot of the complicity that had to happen on the North's part to make it all okay. This is not that. It's much more realistic, very complicated in terms of dealing with the feelings that people felt as they were living with the legacy of the war and the defeat of the South. So many Northern men had died. The kind of the grief and the trauma of that experience are on display in the story and questions about where the country is going and how how we'll become a united nation again. It was viewed at the time as one of the most powerful stories to come out of the war. Which for a woman from New Hampshire and Cleveland is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Her life, because, you know, this time frame we're in, her life is really consumed by the Civil War, though she's from the Northeast, and the one place she is still really well remembered is on Mackinac Island Ah, from the movie Somewhere in Time. Right. Sort of still frozen in the time that it would have been when she lived there, Victorian architecture, no cars. We stopped there on a cross-country road trip. Oh, did you? And it was awesome. So on Mackinac Island, there is a thing called Anne's Tablet that memorializes her book, which is set there. And, and then there is Anne's Cottage, which is not a cottage. This is the point where all the very extremely wealthy East Coasters are going to Mackinac Island and building cottages, which are smaller mansions uh-huh. on the island. It's now a hotel and it's beautiful. We'll put some pictures of these on the website, but you can go and stay in Anne's Cottage. Oh, cool. So she's well remembered as a regional writer when she was one of the most famous writers in the entire country. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. And for our listeners, if you go to girlscancrate.com, girlscancrate.com, and use the code HERNAME, all one word, you can get 20% off your first box on any order. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. She basically traveled around the rest of her life, the next 14, 15 years. And she was in Europe all that time. So how do you hang on to family heirlooms in your books and all of these things? So not much remained from her childhood. But so when she went to Europe in 1880, her mother had just died. She no longer has to care for her parents because her father had died in, 10 years earlier. And she was alone for the first time in her life, could finally go to Europe. She'd been dying to go to Europe. So she goes over there with her sister. And she's brought with her a letter of introduction to Henry James. She met one of his cousins in the U.S. He hadn't published The Portrait of a Lady yet. He wasn't known as the master. He was kind of an up-and-coming, you know, writer who's published a lot in the Atlantic Monthly. So, you know, she, she thought of him as this writer that would be useful for her to know. And she admired his writing. She'd written a review of, of his latest novel, The Europeans, which came out in 1879. She thought she has this letter of introduction. It'd be nice to meet him. She tries to meet him in London, but he's in Paris. And so she just keeps it and continues on her tour. Now, this is the part of the story that often gets framed as she's a minor nobody pursuing Henry James, trying to profit off of his fame. Mm-hmm. The fact is she's outselling him by a lot. Their paths don't actually cross until I think about six months later when she was in Florence. Well, when she meets him, it happens to run across him, the hotel that they're staying at. He knew people there, so they must have met somewhere there. And he was writing The Portrait of a Lady. He, in fact, was on a deadline. He needed to get the next chapters in to the editor at the Atlantic Monthly. And instead, he wrote to the editor and said, the next chapters are going to be a little bit late because there's so many diversions here in Florence. And it turned out he was spending all of his time showing her around, teaching her about art. And so he took time off from writing his masterpiece to <laughs> get to know this woman. They were together for like three weeks. To say it was a fast friendship from the beginning is overstating it because it was a very complex relationship. First of all, she approached him as a traveler overseas. She had this letter of introduction from one of his family members, but she really wanted to know him as a writer. Unfortunately, he'd been living abroad for so long, he'd never heard of her. So right off the bat, you know, there wasn't this sort of equal balance between them as she had hoped there would be. He treated her very chivalrously, as he liked to do, and sort of took on the role of guide and teacher. She'd never been to Europe before. She seems to have had an impact on his writing very early on in their relationship. Meanwhile, she started writing stories about him hmm. and their encounter and sort of turning the, the interesting tensions in their relationship into stories. So you can sort of chart their relationship in some ways through their stories. Unfortunately, you can't chart their relationship through letters. They both agree to burn each other's letters so that they can actually say stuff because they're both aware they're famous. Right. So... I think this is interesting, the opposite approach from the Porter sisters who know they're famous and therefore... Save everything. Yeah, and they use their letters as record keeping, you know, like my biographer will want to know this, so I'm going to write about it. And 
Henry James and Constance Henry Wilson arrive at the opposite conclusion, which is everyone's going to read our letters, which means we won't be able to write what we want. So we're going to agree to destroy them. So that will never happen. So they destroy all of their correspondence, except for some very early letters sent when Henry James was back in America. So his family kept four letters from Constance Fenimore Wilson, and that's all we have. Wow. And those are from the very, very beginning of their relationship. And so those four have been used to frame their whole relationship when it's not at all what it was. Well, we also know that he had a practice of reading people's letters aloud. I mean, a lot of people did that. Letters weren't private. You got an interesting letter from someone, you'd pass it around, you might mail it to other people, or you'd read it aloud. And she knew that he did this. He was notorious for doing it even when people didn't want him to. You know, even when the letter said, please don't share this, he still would. But he never shared hers. So he took that trust very seriously. And they really were confidants in a way that was unusual for the time. Um, But there's not a lot to go on there. And so you do kind of have to take these little moments. One of the books that he'd given to her, he inscribed it um, to to my confrere or, you know, sort of colleague, peer. That suggests that he didn't view her as this minor writer. He respected her. She did gain that sort of respect. And by the time she died... Charles Dudley Warner, who was a pretty famous critic for Harper's, wrote that the entire literary fraternity of the country mourns her death. Which is such a fascinating phrase because it is the highest praise and a clear exclusion. The fraternity mourns her death. Yeah, wow. That she is still not allowed in. And, you know, who knows... So often people are unaware of the way they're gendering language when they're the default, right? Right. But that does seem an interesting choice of words to me. It really does give us a preview of how fast she's going to disappear. Wilson died in 1894, and by the turn of the century, she was already vaporized. She had been obliterated from the literary map that no one has heard of her when she was one of the most popular authors of this time is really amazing. And I think she still would be completely forgotten if it weren't for the serendipity of this. It was when I was in graduate school and I was just browsing the stacks in the library. I was walking through the American literature section just kind of looking around and saw my name on a book, Anne, A-N-N-E, And it just caught my attention. There's Anne in gold letters. So I started looking nearby and saw that there was this whole collection of writings by this woman. And one of them was a recently published um, collection of stories called Women Artists, Women Exiles. And I thought, wow, that sounds cool. That was right up my alley. I always find stories like this so fascinating. The way that we recover these women is so often just such a random chance. It means we have this endless well of stories that we always can be sifting through and telling. Okay, that that makes me feel better than (laughs) everyone's being forgotten. It's one of the things that haunts me is how much fantastic music am I never going to hear? Mm-hmm. I almost have an existential crisis, like staring at a bookstore shelf, going, my favorite novel is on this shelf and I'm never going to find it. It's, I'm going <laughs> to die and never read it. 
these are the things that bother me. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we literally can't. So then that causes us that anxiety, like, oh, I should be reading this, but I also should be reading that. We just can't read them all. Very true. But everybody should read Constance Wynne-Morgelson. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a fan of, like, Edith Wharton or Henry James or George Eliot, this is your jam and you should read it. If you hate those people, don't read this. <laughs> Intellectually, I can understand why that could be panic-inducing, and I, and I realize that that bothers a lot of people, you included. <laughs> and for me, for some reason, I love it. Who knows what could be out there that we're not paying attention to? <laughs> there are millions of people out there telling millions of stories, and I'm just a tiny speck in all of this, and, and I love being a tiny speck. Years ago, you sent me an article by Linda Holmes from NPR. Mm -hmm. It's called The Sad Beautiful Fact That We're All Going to Miss Almost Everything. Yeah. I do love it that you have to just embrace the fact that in the end, you're missing everything and that has to be okay. Yep. I'm clearly still struggling with that. <laughs> That's a wonderful thing, that there's too much good stuff to get through it. What a beautiful time to be alive. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? So part of how she's forgotten is just this process of we're going to pick five guys and those are the guys that we're going to read. But another part of it is that the manner of her death is shrouded in mystery and controversy. Yeah. So at this point, she has spent the last 16 years of her life traveling around Europe, which I think is an example of the way that childhood training of running, literally running from tragedy as a means of coping with it. Yeah. I think that shows up here that her life is really plagued with tragedy. And also she is dealing with severe depression for most of her life. It definitely runs in her family. And it's something that she just has to fight against all the time. At the time of her death, she's living in Venice on the Grand Canal. And she has been extremely ill. She had influenza and was very convinced that she was going to die. She was still suffering the effects of that and probably also severe depression. And it seems that it struck everybody as a shock how depressed she was. She didn't tell Henry James. She didn't tell her sister, people she told everything. And in the middle of the night, she either fell or jumped from her window. She may have just been delirious and fallen out the window. Even though the family tried to keep the circumstances of her death out of print, it came out nonetheless. There were Venetian newspaper reports that indicated she had jumped from her window. And she was living on the Grand Canal, but her window was behind the house, so she would have fallen into the street below, a third-story window. And there's been so much mystery and discussion about how she really died, but I think the impression, at least, that she committed suicide in the 19th century made her a writer who was considered sort of deranged, right, mentally unfit. Suddenly her writing didn't seem so sound and didn't seem so valuable. That's where this gets tricky because I think the way that we talk about the suffering artist mm. is very different from the way it would have been seen at the time. Now I think we're almost to the point where an artist of any kind who suffers who is depressed or who is mentally ill in any way is a sign of true genius, right? right. They're, yeah. They were too good to live. 
they couldn't bear this drab existence anymore. And, and we romanticize it as this proof that they were the real deal. Right. And whether or not that's healthy, that's not at all the way that it was viewed at the time of her death. And especially for a woman to have died by suicide at that point was extremely, extremely bad. So because she dies in this way, all of the books that have been seen as serious and brilliant and meaningful and important are now dangerous. Oh, yeah. Suicide was very much considered um, a taint on her reputation, I think. But the circumstances around her death remain a bit unclear because she did not leave a suicide note. Nobody saw it happen. It's quite possible that she stumbled. The windows extend virtually to the floor. She could have fallen out of it. I do think, however, that it's very likely that she jumped intentionally. It's quite clear she was suffering from depression. So it's quite, it's quite possible. There's some very dark letters that were supposed to be destroyed that nonetheless remain. It's clear that she had a lot of demons. When Henry James is notified, he is utterly devastated and starts getting ready to go to Italy. And then he hears how she died and he cannot cope with it. He certainly seems to have believed that she killed herself. Mm. So he did not go. He didn't go to the funeral because he just couldn't bear it. When she was ill, her final illness, it was in January. She can be very cold and damp in Venice. And she had this woman taking care of her. And she made this woman promise that after she died, she would be taken to Rome and buried in the Protestant cemetery there. So this is a long ways away. It's a big deal to transport a body that far. But Wilson told her she would haunt her if she did not make sure that she was buried in Rome. Can you imagine? (laughs) You know, why she was so adamant about this, I had no idea until I went there myself. So in Venice... The Protestant cemetery, which is where all non-Catholics in Italy are buried in these non-Protestant cemeteries. So that's where you find the famous people that we know about. And so the, uh, in the, the Venetian Protestant cemetery is actually on a whole other island. Right? It's not on the main island of Venice. And so people don't go there. It's not a well-known cemetery. She thought it was kind of dark and drab and you know, not very interesting. But the Protestant cemetery in Rome, on the other hand was very widely known. In fact, Henry James's character, Daisy Miller, is also buried in the Protestant cemetery. So in Rome, I realized how popular a site this still is. I was actually there on All Souls Day, which is a major holiday in Italy. And there were, on both of my days that I visited, there were tour groups coming through the cemetery. She's actually buried very, very close to Percy Shelley. Keats is there. So like Mm. when these tours go through very much like Highgate Cemetery, they all see her grave. Everyone, as you are visiting Shelley's grave, you see Constance Fenimore Wilson's grave too. I realized when I was there, the fact that she wanted to be buried there indicates she did want to be remembered. And the fact that she wasn't remembered anymore then motivated me to, to keep going with the book. Seems like she's placing herself in the canon then if she wants to be buried there. It was a very moving experience, actually, for me to stand there uh, where I know that she died. It was also incredibly moving, even more so, 
to stand at her grave. People have planted some various flowers over the years, but it's it's definitely not one of the most well-known graves. <laughs> But it's a beautiful cemetery. In fact, I wouldn't mind being buried there. And it made me feel very peaceful knowing that, that she was there. She is being re-remembered now. I can't tell you how gratifying it has been to me when people encounter her writing mm -hmm. and they think, wow, she's so good. That means more to me than anything else. Writing this biography was really important, but just as important to me was I did publish a very small volume of stories uh, that came out with the biography. And, you know, people were reading it and, and discovering that, wow, she deserves to be mentioned in the same breath with Henry James. That was what a couple of the reviews said. And, and that meant everything to me. Yeah, maybe she can benefit now from our kind of pivoting on what they... Tortured yeah, this, artist, this suffering writer is back in vogue. Yeah, so. now that that kind of narrative, yeah, makes us interested in people, maybe people will be interested in her. Anne Boyd Rue's new book is called Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters, and it comes out next week on the 21st, and it's already getting huge praise from critics. As we know, many of our guests, and I'm going to assume many of our listeners also, are feel like Little Women was a really, really important book in their childhood. Right. So I think a lot of our listeners might really be interested in this book. Cool. Huge thanks to our guest, Dr. Anne Boyd-Rue. And thank you to Leanne Christiansen. Music for this episode was provided by Mark Henderson, the Weber State University Choirs and Orchestra, Half Pelican, the Earth String Band, and the MIT Symphony Orchestra and Concert Choir. If you'd like to learn more about Constance Fenmore Wilson and find links, pictures, and more, visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com. If you hate those people, don't read this. <laughs> but if you hate Edith Wharton, you're a bad person. I just have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review at iTunes or wherever you listen. It's much more important than you think in helping new listeners find us. Remember to visit our Patreon page to find all the ways that you can support the work we do here at What's Your Name. Even just a dollar a month makes a big difference. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And we're the hosts of the podcast, Your, Your Angry, Angry Neighborhood, Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. A podcast that explores the world through our personal feminist perspective. We're always learning and growing and more than open to correcting ourselves. Okay, by the way, we also use bad words. This is your explicit language warning. Sorry. Tune into your Angry Neighborhood Feminist on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we encourage you to, to rage on. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. Yeah.